You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Slicing up the mango. Slice, slice, slice. Take a sniff of mango. Nice, nice, nice. Open the jar. Yeah, twist, twist. Ah, hear the ocean water going swish, swish. Ah, beep, 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 beep. Hey, Mark. Oh, hey, Molly. Hey, Rihanna. I was just making myself a nice little pre-show snack. It's mango. Do you want some? Ooh, yes. I love mango. Thanks. Up, up, up. Hold on. You're forgetting the most important step. Firmly grip your mango slice thusly. Mangoes are slippery little guys. Okay. Now, dip it ever so gently into this jar of ocean water. But why? Well, I think I was born with a little brine on the brain, so I consider myself something of a salt connoisseur. And the ocean has just the right level of salt. It's incredible. I don't know how that big body of water does it, but hats off to you, my wet friend. All right. Grip, dip, and... Okay, then. Mm. Have a nice snack, Mark. (laughs) Have a good show. You're listening to Brains On from APM Studios. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co-host today is Rihanna from Irvine, California. Hi, Rihanna. Hi, Molly. So, Rihanna, you live close to the ocean. What is your favorite thing about it? My favorite thing about the beach is the cool ocean salty water. I love to gaze at the water. Oh, very nice. What did, Why do you like to look at the water? The water is very inspiring for me. It's beautiful. And do you like to play on the beach? I like to play on the beach and swim. Ah, nice. So when you're swimming... My dad taught me. Well, that's great. Do you like to swim in the ocean? Yes, of course. Yes. (laughs) And so when you're swimming in the ocean, does some of that water ever get in your mouth? Yeah, quite a lot. How would you describe the taste of it? Salt in the water tastes sour. There's a lot of salt. (laughs) There is a lot of salt. And it is kind of like a sour taste. Do you like the taste? Yeah, hmm. sometimes. Yeah, it's a little too salty for me. I did, I did not grow up near the ocean, so I'm not used to it. I live in Minnesota. We do not have an ocean nearby, but we do have lots of lakes, and they are not salty at all. So that brings us to this listener question. Our question is, why are oceans salty while lakes and rivers are not? That's Corin and Sophie with what sounds like a simple question. And you'd think there would be a simple answer, but this is one of those times things are a little more complicated than you might think. Here to explain is Phoebe Lamb. I'm a chemical oceanographer at University of California, Santa Cruz. She studies what the ocean is made of. So exactly how salty is the ocean anyway? The way they defined it originally was they would take a kilogram of seawater and then they would evaporate it. And they would measure what was left. And you'd get some, like a pile of white powder at the end, and you weigh it. And that was how salinity was defined, was the the mass of dry solid in a kilogram of seawater. A kilogram of water is basically one big liter-sized bottle of soda. And salinity basically means how salty something is. So the higher the salinity of the water, the more salty it is. So what is the saltiness or salinity of seawater? 
seawater has a salinity of what we call 35 parts per thousand, and that means you take a kilogram of seawater, you end up with 35 grams of solid stuff. Most of it would be sodium and chloride, but there are other things. So out of that liter, or a big soda bottle's worth of salt water, there's about three tablespoons of salt, size-wise about as big as a medium egg, a very salty egg. It turns out there are many kinds of salt. The majority of the salt in the ocean is sodium chloride, which is the same as table salt. But there are also a bunch of other salts made from other minerals, too. Magnesium and sulfate and calcium and potassium and all sorts of other elements. So when you taste sea salt, salt that's actually been harvested from seawater, it has some of these other elements in it, which gives it a slightly more bitter taste than regular old table salt that's just sodium chloride, or maybe a little sour, like Rihanna said earlier. Some people even prefer this sea salt taste, like Mark. You guys are doing a great job. Speaking of Mark... We just need to pause for a quick message from chemistry. A message from chemistry? Yeah, chemistry is going to explain how the ocean is just, well, uh, chemistry. Stand by. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. I'm chemistry. We've just met, so please allow me to introduce myself. I'm the study of stuff, or matter, and how stuff interacts with other stuff. A composition, combination, transformation. <laughs> it's fun. One of my very favorite substances is water, also known as good old H2O. And this beautiful glass I'm holding is full of a solution, and not a solution that solves a problem, unless that problem is thirst. <laughs> In chemistry, a solution is a word we use for a mixture of substances. Substances meeting, dissolving, appearing as one. In this case, the solution in my glass is made of water and a gas called carbon dioxide. That gas is perfectly spread out in my water, so you get the same crisp taste in every sip. Ah, refreshing. Seltzer, fizzy, sparkling, bubbly water, LaCroix, whatever you want to call it. It's a solution, and our wet and wavy friend, the ocean, is also a solution. That means it has salt dissolved and evenly spread throughout its water. Ah, that's me, chemistry. You're welcome. That was not what I was expecting chemistry to sound like. What a delight. So we have all these salts dissolved or mixed into in the ocean, making a solution of salt water. But how do the salts get there in the first place? Did a salt meteor from space crash in the ocean? Did pirates spill all their cooking salt? Did the fish all cry and cry salty tears until the ocean was a big salty soup? Here's Phoebe again. All of the saltiness in the ocean got there from rivers. And you would probably ask, well, rivers aren't salty. Exactly. That's what Corinne and Sophie want to know. Why are oceans salty while lakes and rivers are not? 
Actually, rivers and lakes do have salt in them, just very little. It's not enough for us to notice. Soil and rocks near lakes and rivers break down over time or erode. And when they do, little pieces of these rocks wash into the lakes and rivers. These tiny bits of soil and rock are made of things called minerals, and salt is just a type of mineral. Many of these small chunks of rock and soil break apart and make salt. Lakes are different than the ocean in an important way. Lakes have outlets, or places where the water escapes, like a river that flows away from the lake. Even if you can't see a big river or a stream coming off a lake, there are still outlets. And these outlets eventually lead to rivers, and these rivers lead to the ocean. The ocean is kind of like a big lake, but with no outlet. Stuff flows in, but nothing flows out. But even though water is constantly flowing into the ocean from rivers, the ocean isn't getting bigger and bigger every day. That's because the ocean is also losing water through evaporation. And when water evaporates off the ocean, it leaves the salt behind. Did someone say evaporation? Hi, it's me, chemistry again. Ah, evaporation. What a delicious word. That's when something changes from a liquid to a gas. In this case, water. When liquid water molecules heat up, they evaporate, becoming a gas. Salt, however, can't turn into a gas so easily, so it stays behind. So over time, the ocean loses water but keeps the salt. That's a crystal. So it gets saltier over time. This is how not very salty water from rivers becomes salty, salty ocean water. Evaporation. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you? There are actually a handful of lakes with no outlets, too. And guess what? They are also salty. If you're ever in Utah, check out the Great Salt Lake. The name kind of says it all. This leads to the next question. If these salts keep getting left behind in the ocean, why isn't it getting saltier and saltier all the time? Until eventually it's nothing but salt. And we have to surf on salt lakes and swim through salt. And Whoa, whoa, don't worry. The salts have a way of leaving the water. So the salts are coming in, but they're also being removed from mineral precipitation. If only we had a jazzy way of talking about precipitation. It's me, chemistry. And I have a treat for you. Precipitation. Precipitation. Mm-hmm. That's when a substance comes out of a solution. It says, bye-bye. I don't want to be mixed up with you anymore. <laughs> it would be like if the chocolate in your chocolate milk suddenly clumped together and turned back into a chocolate bar, leaving the milk white and creamy again. <laughs> don't worry. That won't happen with your drink. But it does happen with air. Air, that gorgeous gas we breathe in and out. That's a solution, too. Up in the sky, water molecules and other gases all come together to form a solution of air. 
But the water can precipitate out, becoming a liquid again and fall into the earth. We call it rain. <laughs> so any substance in a solution can precipitate out. I'm looking at you, Salt. Oh, and you're looking at me, hello. Do you like what you see? <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks. So yes, usually we hear the word precipitation and think rain. Water on land evaporates and becomes rain clouds. Then the water falls from the clouds as droplets. It turns out salts do something similar. The salt in the water forms back into solid minerals and becomes like a tiny rock or a speck of sand again. Some of these minerals that precipitate out fall to the ocean floor, sort of like rain falling out of the sky. And these minerals end up forming sedimentary rocks, like gypsum. That's the main component in sheetrock, the stuff that makes the walls in your house or school. So in a way, your home may have been formed by this ocean cycle. This underwater precipitation helps the ocean keep its salty balance, so it's not too salty. There are slight differences in salt level in different parts of the ocean. Some spots in the Atlantic are as high as 37 parts per thousand, and some areas of the Pacific can be as low as 32 parts per thousand. But the average is 35 parts per thousand, and it's been that way for millions of years. There are lots of other things that help keep this special balance of saltiness going. Water evaporates. Non-salty fresh water flows in from rivers or falls down in rain. New minerals come in through these rivers and through underwater openings in the seafloor called hydrothermal vents. In fact, hydrothermal vents are also one of the ways salt leaves the ocean. More on hydrothermal vents later in the show. The ocean is a sort of complicated machine that somehow always manages to balance out how salty it is. I teach it in my graduate chemical astronomy class, so it does end up being a little bit more complicated. So we figured the best way to talk about this super complicated thing is to write a song. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Right? It's called the Salty Sea Shanty. But before that salty song, it's time for some natural noises to knock on your eardrums. It's time for the... Mystery sound. You ready, Rihanna? Yeah. All right. Here it is. What do you think? What is your guess? It sounds like a... Printer. Mm. Er, yeah. Thinking a printer. All right, we're going to hear it again a little later and give you another chance to guess and find out the answer after the credits. We're working on an episode all about stress, and we want to hear from you. We want to know, what does your body feel like when you're stressed out? So Rihanna, what does stress feel like in your body? When I'm stressed I feel like my body's about to explode. Ooh, yeah, I know that feeling. And, and so when you do have that feeling, what helps you feel better? And to make me feel better, I pop a poppet. And I play my favorite games. What is a poppet? It's like a stress toy. Is that kind of like, looks like kind of like little bubbles you're supposed to press? Yeah, that thing. I'll have to try that when I'm feeling stressed out next time. 
Record your answer and send it to us at brainson.org contact. And if you have any other questions, mystery sounds, high fives, or drawings you'd like to share with us, you can send those to us at brainson.org contact too. That's where we got this question. My name is Viva, and my question is, why do dogs chase their tails? You can hear an answer to that question on our Moment of Um podcast. It's a short daily dose of facts that comes out every weekday. Find the podcast wherever you listen to Brains On. Search for Moments of Um. You're listening to Brains On from APM Studios. I'm Rihanna. And I'm Molly. And now, here it is, the song we've all been waiting for, the Salty Sea Shanty. Oh, rocks erode and minerals flow to the ocean where they have nowhere to go. These minerals stay dissolved in the sea where they taste salty to you and to me. But the ocean has found a balance so sweet that if that pass but thousand salinity, a balance just right, we all give a cheer. That's it. We have a music video for this song at our website featuring drawings by you, our listeners. Head to brainson.org to check it out. Now we're going to travel to the silent depths of the ocean. Hydrothermal vents, also known as underwater hot springs, are super fascinating and also very important in helping minerals come in and out of the ocean. These vents occur where there are underwater volcanoes. Seawater goes down into the crust and is heated up by very hot magma. That's rock that's so hot, it's actually a liquid. Over 70% of the volcanic activity 
on Earth occurs underwater, but most people don't know it because they never get to see it. That's oceanographer Deborah Kelly from the University of Washington. These vents are referred to as black smokers because they're basically chimneys that spew out superheated water. The water coming out of the vents looks like black smoke because it contains fine mineral particles, making it darker than the water around it. Deborah has traveled deep underwater in a small submarine to study these vents up close. It's one of the most fantastic things I've ever done. I always have been down more than 50 times, um, and I would drop anything usually to go down there. And the first 300 feet or so or more are kind of sunlit because the light penetrates. And then you go into complete darkness, and a lot of the organisms are bioluminescent, so they, so to speak, glow in the dark, and the vehicles dark inside. And you can put your face up against the window, and it, it looks like you're falling through the stars. Almost every time we go down there, we see something new, or you know that you're the first human eyes to ever ever see that. Scientists have learned a lot from these underwater hot springs, but we didn't even know they existed until about 50 years ago. Part of what makes them so amazing is that even though they are in total darkness, there are cool and strange creatures that live there. These strange creatures of the deep have lots of cool superpowers, too. They can actually filter toxic metals out of the water. Mining companies are using them to clean water. Scientists are working to see if these organisms could be used to capture carbon dioxide from the air or possibly even develop new medicines. Deborah Kelly ended up in this field by accident, but she's very excited about all there is to learn in the future. You know, when I was growing up, it's the whole, uh, you know, I wasn't the smartest kid. I worked hard, but um, I, I always thought that um, discoveries were uh, for somebody else, right? And, and uh, right now in oceanography, um, you know, the, the oceans really govern the health of our planet. And I think understanding not only the hot springs, but the oceans that we live in, um, it's going to be more and more critical. And as kids come up through, you know, K-12 and into college, and this is one of the areas where there's a potential for a really huge discoveries, and many of them, not just a couple. The ocean really is the last frontier on Earth. Now, Rihanna, we've been hunting down the answer to Corinne and Sophie's question about why the ocean is salty, but you also wrote to us with your own question about the ocean floor. You wanted to know what it's made of. So what got you interested in this? At school, I had to do research about famous woman leaders. I was very interested in the life of Mary Tharp. She was a geologist, and she made the first map of the ocean floor. She discovered that it was not flat. I think this is very cool. So I wanted to know what the seafloor was made of. I love that she compared the ocean floor to a fascinating jigsaw puzzle to piece together. That is really, really cool. Yeah, Marie Tharp is very, very inspiring. Do you like to solve puzzles too? Oh, of course I do. So when you read about Marie Tharp, did you you kind of see like some of your own interests in her? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Marie Tharp's work is super inspiring and even more so because she did it at a time when women were told that they shouldn't go into men's fields like physics and geology. 
Marie finished college right before World War II. When the United States joined this war, a lot of men were asked to leave behind their schooling and jobs to help fight. Women who stayed home were asked to fill in for the men. For Marie Tharp, that meant studying geology, something usually only men were encouraged to do. She got a master's degree and eventually a job in the field. But there were still doors that were closed to her. She worked for a group studying the ocean floor and was told women weren't allowed to go on the ships that were collecting the data. But that didn't stop Marie from making a huge contribution to our understanding of the world. She took all the data from these ships and pieced it together into a detailed map of the ocean floor, all by hand, without computers or cameras. And what she mapped blew her mind. She found a 10,000-mile-long ridge in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, basically an underwater mountain range. People had thought the ocean floor was flat, but it wasn't. This ridge meant that the ocean floor was spreading, that there were plates on the surface of the earth slowly moving, causing volcanoes and earthquakes. This idea is called plate tectonics, and it was new at the time. When she brought this to the men she worked with, they dismissed it as girl talk. But eventually, given all the data, they accepted it. Scientists today are still inspired by Marie Tharp's work. In Katie Kelly's lab at the University of Rhode Island, she has copies of Marie's maps hanging on the walls. The map that she made was a huge transformation for understanding the geology of planet Earth because... If you've seen her map, you know that what it did is it basically peeled away the ocean layer so that you can see what the ocean floor looks like. And it's really, really different from what the rocks look like on land. And that was one of the major keys for understanding the plate tectonic model, which is how we describe the geology of planet Earth. Whoa. Yeah. Very cool. Let's pretend there was some kind of amazing suit you could wear where you could start on the beach and just kind of keep walking and it would like anchor you to the floor, like what Mm -hmm. that journey would be like. Right. So in the really near shore environment, you'd have wave action working on your body, right? If you've gone swimming at the beach, you know what that feels like. And you'd be able to see in the water. Right, It would have this beautiful blue color. You'd potentially be able to see fish and the mud and rocks on the ocean bottom. But as you walk out deeper and deeper, the light goes away. And that's one of the things that makes Marie Tharp's map actually really incredible is that we can't see the ocean bottom. It was very hard to make that map because light can't get down there. So as the light fades away, it gets darker and darker. And then as you continue to walk out, it's actually pretty shallow, really shallow slope. Actually, it will take you a long time to get into very deep ocean water. But then you'll come to this place called the shelf break. And it's a very steep slope. Then it takes you down into the abyss until you'll get deeper, much faster if you keep walking. And so it's mostly sand, mud, all the way out until you get close to the the peak of a mid-ocean ridge. And then the rocks will change because there'll be lava flows covering the seafloor instead of this mud 
because you get closer to the zone where active volcanoes are very continuously spitting out lava flows. And so the sediment doesn't have a chance to pile up there because it's continually resurfaced through volcanic activity. Thanks, Katie. You're really smart. Thanks for answering my questions. Well, thank you, Rihanna. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Good luck. The ocean is salty thanks to chemistry. You're welcome. Rivers carry salt into the ocean from soil and rocks breaking apart. Ocean water evaporates, leaving salt behind. But eventually, some of this salt leaves the water to become solid again. So the balance of salt in the water is always about 35 parts per thousand. Hydrothermal vents are an important part of the cycle. They sit on the ocean floor where there's a lot of volcanic activity. Mary Thart mapped the ocean floor, leading us to understand that the surface of our planet is made up of plates. That's it for this episode of Brains On. This episode was produced by Molly Bloom, Anna Goldfield, Ruby Guthrie, Mark Sanchez, and Nico Whistler. Our editors are Shayla Farzan and Sandin Totten. And our executive producer is Beth Perlman. We had engineering help from Kevin Stockdale, Jess Berg, and Derek Ramirez. Special thanks to Eric Ringham, Rania Matuk, and Hussein Mackey. The executives in charge of APM Studios are Chandra Kavadi, Joanne Griffith, and Alex Shaffert. Brains On is a nonprofit public media program. There are lots of ways you can support the show. Head to brainson.org. There you can donate, check out our merch, buy our book, or listen to past episodes. And tell your friends about us. If you like Brains On, they'll probably like it too. Okay, Rihanna, you ready to go back to that mystery sound? Yes. All right, let's hear it again. Yeah, what do you think now? I think it's like a remote-controlled car. Ooh, I can totally hear that. Yes, because it kind of like stops and starts. Remote-controlled something with a motor. Oh, a motor for sure. All right, you ready to hear the answer? Yes. All right, here is Quinn from Houston, Texas with the answer. That was the sound of a pencil being sharpened. Thank you. Bye. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so a pencil being sharpened, but it had a motor in there to make the sharpener go. It's one of those automatic ones. Have you used an automatic pencil sharpener before? Only at school. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. But it totally sounded like a remote control car to me, too. That was a good guess. That was amazing. It was amazing. Now it's time for the Brains Honor Roll. These are the incredible listeners who keep this show going with their questions, ideas, mystery sounds, drawings, and high fives. Kavi from Charlotte, North Carolina, Miriam, Rachel, and Samuel from Montreal, Quincy from Brooklyn, New York, Iris and Henry from Seattle, Della and Imani from Stone Mountain, Georgia, Etta from Yosemite Valley, California, Scarlett from Topeka, Kansas, Kaziah from Kansas City, Belle from Wisconsin, Laughlin, Lincoln, Fisher, and Finnegan from Topton, Pennsylvania, Nora from Shelton, Connecticut, Uma from Minneapolis, Bo from Stratford, Connecticut, Emerson from Boston, Charlie from Freeport, Maine, Athen from North Bend, Washington, Camille from Dallas, Heinrich from Ottawa, Anna and Grace from Abbotsford, British Columbia, Kara from the Philippines, Roshan from Washington, D.C., Nath from Indiana, 
Caleb and Audrey from Burlington, Ontario, Mariam from Scottsdale, Arizona, Ileana from Loretto, Minnesota, Colette from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Vivi from Elton, Illinois, Caroline from Anchorage, Alaska, James and Sarah from South Jordan, Utah, Sophia from Waltham, Massachusetts, Freya from Verdun, Quebec, Anderson and Sawyer from Excelsior, Minnesota, Owen from Columbus, Ohio, Natalie from Boulder, Colorado, Nico from Salt Lake City, Christopher from Kent, Sophia from Syracuse, New York, Annalie and Sadie from El Paso, Texas, Rihanna from Irvine, California, Maria from Burnaby, British Columbia, Dev from West Pennant Hills, Australia, Elena from Corbin, Kentucky, Henry from Melbourne, Australia, Luke from Greenland, New Hampshire, Niara from Navarre, Florida, Clark and Noah from San Antonio, Texas, Aoife from Port Leisha, Ireland, Audrey from Farmington, Arkansas, Mateus from Maryland, Ephraim from Abington, Pennsylvania, Nico and Benji from Galesburg, Illinois, Josiah and Seth from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Julian from Santa Clara, California, Isaac from Williamston, Michigan, Sam from Los Angeles, Petra from Canada, Soraya, Asha and Sonia from Chicago, Amog from Oxford, Mississippi, Olivia from Biggleswade, England, Owen from Asheville, North Carolina, Aya from Dubai, Kina from California, Nicholas from Kentucky, Freya from Edmonds, Washington, Opal from Chicago, Vishal from Calgary, Anna from Dayton, in Ohio, May Louise and Maxon from Lathrop, California, Mia from Mississauga, Ontario, Noelani from Cypress, Texas, and Emmy and Mira from South Pasadena, California. We'll be back next week with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.